It's episode 47 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. Today on the program, I'm joined by my old friend, Lou Rosenfeld. He's the publisher of one of the most prolific user experience publishing companies, Rosenfeld Media, but he is perhaps better known as one of the founding fathers of information architecture. We're going to be talking about that discipline, both its history and current manifestations, and how we still have a lot to learn from librarians. Thanks for being on the program. Great to be here. Thanks, Jeff. Oh, it's always a pleasure to talk. We don't do it nearly enough. Uh, we have known each other for a very long time, uh, and I'd love to talk about some of that. But first, I want to beg your forgiveness for using Founding Father. Is that all right? Is that you mind? Uh, I, I guess you're just kind of making me feel really old on a day I was already feeling really old. So thanks. <laughs> no problem. Sorry, sorry. Uh, well, we've both been here for quite a while, so I think I'm entitled. Um, uh, but you were there, you were there like right there at the beginning. Uh, let's see, like I was just looking at your bio, um, uh, and you were like your first company in 1991 doing this stuff, weren't you? Yeah. Argus associates way back then when, uh, uh the internet was a real pain in the ass just to use. And so, uh, started that company, uh, as a hobby, uh, while in, I think I might've been just out of grad school and started it with Joe James, who was, uh, a buddy of mine and also professor at the uh, School of Information at the University of Michigan. And we were just trying to teach people how to use the internet and how to work with uh, FTP and Telnet and Waze and all those uh, crazy things that you and I probably haven't even thought of in in 10 or 20 years. Yeah, no, God, yeah, for sure. Did you know, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I was in Michigan at the same time. I was in uh, Grand Rapids. Uh, you know, I was. Uh, you were on the other side of the state. Yeah, yeah. I was going. To, I went Cal- to college. Right? Yeah, I went to college uh, to Calvin College, uh, which is uh, kind of liberal arts school around five thousand people, so kind of smaller, but over in Western Michigan. Um, but I used to go to. I had a friend that lived in Windsor, over in Canada, and I would drive over there on weekends, uh, ostensibly to see him, but probably more because the drinking age was eighteen over there, and, and we would uh, and we would stop in. Um, uh, in Ann Arbor, because there was this Mongolian barbecue we went to all the time. So that's my familiarity yeah. with. That was a block from my office. Oh, my God. There you go. Uh, our paths may have crossed. We may have eaten there at the same time. Um, but that, yeah, that was uh, God, late 80s and early 90s, so long time ago. And you were, at the time, uh, doing information science. Was that even a discipline at the school then? Or were, is this something you were sort of crafting at the same time? Well, information science has been around, you know, at least since Claude Shannon in the in the forties, early forties. Um, I don't know when they coined the term, but, uh, you know, information science had, had been something that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of academics had been, uh, uh studying and, and, uh, uh, it, it was sort of in some respects, the theoretical, uh, uh, sibling to library science and, uh, really informed a lot of the, uh, early computer systems that, uh, and databases that, um, you know, were, were coming up since the forties at least. And, you know, to, but I was, I was really in the uh, program mostly to, uh, figure out what the heck I wanted to do. Um, I, I didn't really want to become a librarian. I didn't know that I wanted to become an information scientist either sort of ended up kind of becoming something else. But what, what was, uh, what was attractive to it, uh, about it back then? Well, I, I had the a, program. an entrepreneurial uh, streak, and, and I had this idea that I wanted to start a company that did uh, uh, rental apartment listings, a service, a, a 
for that uh, because it was such a pain in the ass trying to find those types of listings uh, while I was in Ann Arbor as a student and after I was a student and just, you know, trying to find a place to live every year was just a real pain in the ass. And I figured organizing listings of uh, apartments couldn't be that different from organizing information about books and articles. And so uh, I decided to try the, this, what was in the Information and Library Studies program at Michigan back in 1988. And uh, I was really kind of wrong about that. Um, it was very different. <laughs> and I'm really glad that uh, I was so naive as to take a chance on that program because it really kind of helped make me who I am. So you were sort of thinking about this in the context of uh, online services at the time, which would have been like CompuServe and AOL. Is that sort of that era? Yeah, I don't know too much about those. Um, but in around 88 or so, I had this sort of really kind of uh, uh, amazing, uh, 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 kind of an, what would you say, an epiphany of sorts mm -hmm. about the Internet. I'd been doing a little bit of email, uh, which you could do as a student at the university. And there was, you know, bulletin boards and so on. Uh, but they were all kind of localized to the university. Yeah. But around that time, I got involved in Usenet. I remember Usenet. And um, uh, I remember this stumbling on Usenet and, and finding a uh, Usenet uh, news group called rec.food.recipes. Uh -huh. And I said, wow, this is kind of interesting. There's all these people to sort of ask for recipes and other people post recipes. I'm going to post a request for, for a dish that I'd had in Russia years earlier called Pelmeni. That's uh, a fire up your computer, you shovel some coal in the back of it, and I fired up my computer in the morning. <laughs> yeah. I, I posted this request for a recipe for Pelmeni, thinking I'll never hear a thing. And then at the end of the day, I had my second firing up of my computer to check. And there were six recipes for Pelmenye from all over the world in my inbox. And that was just an amazing moment for me. And I said, this is, this is different. This is fantastic. I, I think I want to keep working with this thing and see if I can help other people start learning how to use the Internet. I had a very similar experience with Usenet uh, around that same time on the, uh, the computer system. I guess we were both probably connected through Mishnet, which was kind of one of the first early kind of cooperatives around wiring up universities and stuff like that. Um, so there was Internet access very early on in my, in my uh, college career. But I found, uh, I can't remember what the bulletin board was, but it was literally full of fonts. And I was, uh, uh, I was doing freelance work as a as a, as a writer, I'd say journalist, but as a writer. And then I would also pick up like desktop publishing stuff that I could do in the, on the Macs in the lab, but I never had the fonts that I wanted to have. And I couldn't afford any cause I was like, you know, totally like broke as a student. And there was this, uh, you know, very early, frankly, pirating of, of, uh, fonts. And I just downloaded all of them. I thought that was amazing that I could use these fonts and, and stuff like that. I never told that story when we were out doing fundraising for typekit. Um, so I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of outing myself now, but, um, but uh, this has always been kind of my philosophy that a lot of piracy by students is a way of building customers over time, and you just have to wait for them to have some money, and maybe that's the justification. Oh, totally. As a publisher, I, I, I officially uh, 
see it that way too with our books. Yeah. 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 But, uh, the irony of like, that was one of my introductions to the, to the internet was, um, stealing fonts off the Usenet and using them to do my desktop publishing. Uh, wow. Yeah. But feels good to confess, I guess. Um, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So then, um, uh, you started Argus and Associates, which I guess o- over time kind of turns into the consulting company that that begins the practice of information architecture. Is there is that, was that sort of the evolution? Yeah. So uh, Joe James, as I mentioned, and I we started teaching classes uh, on things like uh, you know how to do Telnet and, and uh, FTP yeah. and Archie and Veronica and Waze and all those things um, and Usenet. And um, we were this is a hobby, and we were teaching. Uh, groups of educators and librarians, mostly in Michigan. Uh, and we started noticing people would start coming from out of state to take these workshops, which we, I don't even know how we advertise them, but somehow we did. And um, then I, I, you know, I was like, I was in the doctoral program at Michigan and started teaching how to do that sort of thing uh, for our students. And Joe and I actually co-taught uh, and, um, in fact, Peter Morville was, was one of our early students. Yeah. And um, what we started doing was teaching them how to use these tools to, as librarians, pull together information that could then be published in Gopher. Oh, yeah. Uh, so this is like 93. Uh, we started, um, they, so we, we would have the students pair up and pick a topic they both were interested in, like personal finance or theater or statistics or whatever they liked. And then they would go out and use the tools we were teaching them how to use and find information and then create guides to each of those topics for which we then publish in this horribly named clearinghouse for subject oriented internet resource guides, which was a gopher site. (laughs) Uh, And um, it was amazing. They were just like, totally hooked. It was addictive. These students were like getting, I think it was like getting half the amount of credits they'd get for a normal class, but spending more time on this one project than they were spending on all their other classes combined. Uh, and they were, you know, as librarians, they were pulling together all their the skills they'd been learning, but actually applying them to create products that were being used by other human beings, not yeah, just something yeah. theoretical. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the second time we taught it, I remember, uh, well, uh, somewhere in the first year, uh, Rich Wiggins, old friend of mine, late Rich Wiggins from Michigan State, came and guest lectured, and he said, "You're all going to be using the web soon because there's this thing called Mosaic coming, and it's a graphical version of the web." The web had been around for a year or two, and I remember thinking that was just ludicrous, <laughs> it was just the stupidest thing because you know the kind of links and and the way you design the, the links in a, a hypertextual environment were very kind of personal like uh, unlike hierarchies which is what Gopher relied on and um so I, I just thought that was nuts and then i remember seeing as you probably do uh mosaic mm-hmm. and looking at the trove of kandinsky paintings and uh just think, thinking this is beautiful and we were definitely going to be using the web and uh, even though I went to the GopherCon back in 94, all my students started creating websites and we helped them do that. And then, you know, I had a, I got to, but meanwhile, Peter and I had kind of started beefing up Argus and uh, we had business and I had to choose between the doctoral program and Argus. 
And I remember uh, thinking, all right, I, 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 there's no way I, I can give up on a PhD. That would be really stupid. And, and then about a month later, I was like, mm, uh, no, I think I can always go back for my PhD, which I guess I theoretically still can. And that was 1994. Oh, you haven't gone back? You don't have your- <laughs> I haven't gone back. They're, they're hopefully keeping a seat warm for me. But uh, I think an honorary gr- degree at this point, dude. <laughs> right, right. So, so uh, yeah, you know, so we, 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 Peter and I built a company and up to about 40 people and uh, based in Ann Arbor and mostly librarians, but we folded in usability people like Keith Instone and. Oh, yeah. Remember Keith? I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and Carl Fast is someone with uh, uh, a strong knowledge of markup language. And uh, we brought in uh, Dennis uh, Schleicher as an anthropologist. We brought in Amy Warner, my old doctoral advisor, as a taxonomy expert. We, we had a really interesting mix of people, not just librarians, but we were really trying to synthesize what we knew uh, uh, as IA. And um, we did great until we hit the economic downturn the end of 2000 mm-hmm. when we the canary in coal mine for the economy. And, uh, we, we were not a dot-com startup and we didn't have dot-com startup clients, but in a, in a matter of a, a couple of months, we lost almost all of our business and went from 40 people to, uh, six months later, uh, shutting down because we just didn't see any business coming in any longer. It was just a, a brutal winter, the winter, uh, the worst winter of my life. But, uh, you know, uh, out of that came good things and, uh, still in touch with most of those people. So, well, it was, it was hugely influential, uh, when we were, uh, a year later starting adaptive path and kind of like coming out of those, you know, rising from the ashes or whatever of all of that, that had happened, uh, as a tiny little collective of partners, it's all we were, but Argus was the huge inspiration. Um, what you were doing with them, with, with that group, uh, what Jared had been doing with UIE, Jared Spool, um, mm-hmm. was really like what we were looking at as, um, model for just the kind of work that we wanted to do. Um, and one of the things that I found so impressive both, and what, you know, talk about the polar bear book here in a, in a little bit as well, was this idea that, uh, there was this, this notion that information science was inherently very human driven and, uh, and, and it was the, the research practices, the idea of like, we don't just make this up out of the blue, but we, we base it on an observation of what's happening with the people who are going to ostensibly use the system that, um, that I think was really kind of influential. And, and I don't know if there's like a history of that in, uh, library sciences or information sciences, but, uh, that was very new idea to me. Uh, and I think my, my peers, when, when we were sort of getting started. Well, let me just say, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm so flattered that we had some impact on, on you guys because, uh, you know, to me, Adaptive Path is, is one of the model companies, uh, if not the model for uh, for agencies in our industry. And, uh, you know, I know all the founders and I, uh, you guys are, are just an amazing group. And, you know, obviously, I'm I, I'm still in touch with many of you. Um, well, thank you. But your question about, uh, you know, the, the role of the, the, the human in library science, you know, one of the, the most valuable courses I ever took in college, undergrad, grad, you name it, it's librarianship. And the whole concept of, of the reference interview mm-hmm. and how you ask answers to you broker uh, people's information needs. Yeah. And, and 
you cataloging like a, a another valuable valuable course for us. I think I can speak for. And you know what we were trying to do was take those principles and bring them to the internet because our professors had kept the impending information revolution, uh, where they weren't really up and up to speed was the internet. Yeah. And uh, you know the the, the the kind of cutting edge when I got to grad school was CD-ROM technology. Uh-huh. It, it's not enough, but academia tends to to, to lag a little bit. And uh, so we we had a chip on our shoulders. We wanted to show the librarians that there was a future, a critical one, for which librarianship was going to be absolutely fundamentally necessary outside of libraries, outside the traditional contexts. And, you know, it's like the old blacksmith uh, problem. Like they, a lot of them, I think, really had a hard time seeing how their skills would matter outside of the traditional library context. And then we had the other shoulder had another chip on it, which was, well, damn it, the rest of the world doesn't value librarianship at all. And we want to change that too. And that's how we started uh, doing the work we were doing and the writing we were writing. Mm -hmm. That's great. I have a bunch of questions about that, but I'm going to take a little break here and tell you about a sponsor of the show first, uh, before we get back to that. And that is Casper, uh, the, this episode of Presentable is brought to you by our friends at Casper. They are the company that is focused on sleep. And if and they are dedicated to making you exceptionally comfortable one night at a time. Uh, you spend a third of your life sleeping. And if you spend a third of your life doing anything, you want to make sure it's the best it can possibly be. And that's why you need Casper. Casper mattresses are perfectly designed for humans. With engineering to soothe and support your natural geometry, it's got all the right support in all the right places. So what goes into making a Casper mattress so comfortable? They combine multiple supportive memory foams with for a quality mattress with just the right sink and bounce. Casper mattresses are designed and developed in the United States, and their breathable design helps reduce your body temperature throughout the night. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, Casper is very quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. And you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial, uh, and they deliver directly to your door. You can get $50 off select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash presentable and using presentable at checkout. That's casper.com slash presentable with presentable at checkout and terms and conditions apply. We thank Casper for their support of this show and for all of Relay FM. Want to sell you a mattress, Lou? Well, you know... I want to know if you can do a memory upgrade on those mattresses. <laughs> They're good mattresses. So you were taking classes, learning from librarians how to get information from people for their information needs. And that kind of fed into a philosophy of like, hey, we can do this with, with the technology that's coming out now. As Mosaic really kind of, you know, busted down that will the internet be uh, used for commerce or not door. Uh, we were already seeing sites that were just an absolute mess, mm-hmm. and uh, we were starting to see sites um, and too full of, of crappy information, outdated information, as we would call it. We learned this from one of our clients, rot, redundant, outdated, and trivial totally. information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, so we we started to try to, you know, open up some possibilities for uh, the wider web, and uh, we, I remember getting a, uh, an interesting writing gig uh, with um, uh, Web Review Magazine, 
And uh, that was an O'Reilly, uh, the first uh, foray into magazine publishing. I think the second one was a bit more successful. That was Make Magazine. Mm, yeah. But uh, one of my students, Abbott Chambers, had actually parlayed the, the project he did in my class that I taught on personal finance into um, a gig with the GNN. What was it? The Global Navigation Network. Or, yeah. Do you remember GNN? Oh, yeah, totally, totally. And, and eventually O'Reilly, uh, I don't know if they started it or they eventually owned it. I know it changed hands a few times. And he became a VP there. And he told them that they should talk to me about becoming a columnist. And I started writing web architect columns for mm -hmm. them. And then uh, Peter started joining in and, and some of our staff started writing those as well. And, and then they said, could you do a book? And th that book, uh, we uh, wrote that mostly in 97, came out in 98. And now we're uh, up to the, the fourth edition came out, I think, in 2015, yeah, just, just a couple of years ago, keeping it, yeah. right, keeping it right up to date. That's pretty impressive. Well, I'll give the credit to uh, actually a guy who just wrote a book for us, Jorge Arango, who did the lion's share of, of updating for the fourth edition. Mm -hmm. And the book was Information Architecture for the World Wide Web, and uh, it had a polar bear on it. And throughout our industry for many, many years, everybody talked about the polar bear book. So it had quite an impact. I, you know, I, it's amazing to me. Um, I, I still go all over. Like I was just in Taipei and people bring up copies of that book at conferences for me to sign. And sometimes it's the dog-eared first edition. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm touched because, you know, it is a, a couple well-meaning but naive guys who didn't know any better, knew just enough to you know, put some some ideas together and at a time when publishers like O'Reilly were very open to taking risks and uh, um, we managed to, to get a book out and um, the timing was really good. And, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to be like self-deprecating, but I, I don't know if it's a really, it's been a really successful book. I think it's been more successful than, than maybe it's good. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but here's what I think. Here's why it's was successful. And I think a lot of people who are writing need to keep this in mind. It's not necessarily the, that a book like that, a technical book, needs to solve problems for readers. It needs to give them framework and a vocabulary so that they can solve problems that are interdisciplinary problems themselves. So mm -hmm. um, that a developer and a marketer and a graphic designer and a librarian and other people, a usability engineer, let's say, they could start having a conversation about information problems that were, you know, really suddenly in their face in yeah. 1998. And they didn't have that language before. And so you could look at a site at that time and say, oh, graphic designer must have done this one pretty clear, or that one was done by a technical communicator. And they, you know, you didn't have the sort of interdisciplinary approach. And we tried to take a very synthetic approach with IA and bring everyone in. And you were one of the speakers, if I remember, at the first IA Summit. And that was, I think, 20 or 25 really different people <laughs> back in, what was it, 99, that we got to speak about IA. And I remember saying, I don't care what you say, as long as it's about IA and you have 20 minutes. And, <laughs> uh, you know, like the, the lineup was just like radically different backgrounds. And mm -hmm. let's see how many blind men we can point at the elephant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And try to some truth yeah yeah i think i talked about amazon's tabs they had just introduced tabs and uh um, oh, 
this because I dug up your uh, uh, your tabsonomy example. <laughs> my presentation last month in, in Taipei. <laughs> That's great. That's great. There's a twenty two year old meme going on still, or something like, just about like that. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Um, but it's interesting, you know, like I think the book and the, and then I, there was the Inf- information architecture Institute as well, the, the sort of society behind all of this and managing the discipline and all of that kind of happened at a period of time where the way the web was being made kind of buckled under scale. Right. <laughs> so, you know, there was this, no joke, this, the, most companies had a single person that was a webmaster who literally took text files of HTML and FTP'd them onto a server. And that would be their entire process. And I mean, these are companies like GE and, and stuff, right? Like these enormous companies that all of a sudden this FTP server has 50,000 files and nobody knows where anything is and it's impossible to manage. And wait a minute, who's, we're starting to get some significant traffic to our website here. And who's deciding what's going up in all these places and like what the tabs are going to be and how people get to stuff. And it suddenly became both a technical management problem and a social management problem. Uh, and I think pulling that out and saying, no, it's not just a webmaster. And no, it's not just a graphic designer who is going to figure out how people interact with a site and find and, and satisfy their information needs from a site like this. So, um, so that felt like what was happening right around the, the late 90s. Because in the early 2000s, after the, after the bust, like we had Adaptive Path, our bread and butter was helping companies migrate into content management systems. And we called those like dynamic websites that were no longer just static files on a web server, but were managed by a database and stuff like that. And coming up with the architecture for the database and then to the architecture of the website was like the work that we, we spent a bunch of years doing that work. Jeff, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head. I, I remember in about 99, uh, while at Argus doing some consulting for a big six uh, consulting firm, consulting accounting firm. And um, uh, uh, we had like a, a three-day retreat in London with the team to, to try to help them move into some sort of dynamically managed content management system-based uh, approach. Yeah. And um, I, I'm, I'm like talking with them about it and I keep getting resistance. And like after two days, I finally dug into the resistance and it, it turned out that the most junior person at the table uh, on the team uh, didn't like the idea of moving to a dynamic approach. And when I asked why, she said, well, I, because I won't get to make HTML anymore. <laughs> and it's like you, your personal desire is going to hold up this whole unbelievably important process for like a major corporation seriously and uh so but that's what we were up against then and uh you know eventually i'm sure they worked it out but uh you know not when i was with them right but that i mean that fear of like uh we're going to make decisions about the website and that's going to affect my job is still like it's still 90 percent of consulting i think today in in design and and the work that we do Absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the psychology of consulting is just bizarre. I mean, I, I, I mean, I know so many cases when I was a solo consultant uh, in the aughts, um, I, I used to get brought on by people who would tell me, I, I'm good. I know you're probably going to say the same thing I've been saying, but they don't listen to me. That's why you're here. Yep. You know, oh, okay. Well, that's, it's kind of depressing. Yeah. yeah. It's, one reason, it's one reason I gave up consulting. 
Oh, you guys don't do consulting anymore? No, no. Uh, I've been doing Rosenthal Media stuff for solid for five, six years now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and still kind of keeping uh, all the practices alive through that. I mean, the, the breadth of work that you guys are doing with Rosenfeld Media, the breadth of topics that you're publishing on within user experience, very impressive. Thank you. Well, we're trying. I never feel like we're doing enough, but uh, we're, we're giving it a good shot. And, uh, you know, it's nice to be creating products and eating our own dog food, doing the user research we need to do to to. to you know, create books and design those and also to design conferences and the programs of those conferences. It's very much, you know, applying what we know to, to what we do in, in the context of creating these types of information products, books and, and conferences. You know, along, along the lines of those conferences, you have uh, also kind of been involved in the IA Summit since its beginning, like we were saying very early on, um, and really kind of driving towards a community around information architecture. What's that like today? Information architecture? Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard for me to say because, you know, for a while I, I felt like it wasn't for me anymore. And that's not because of any, any kind of personal stuff. I, I felt like I had moved on. And I know that's true for a lot of people who are there at the start. Like if you look at the, the photo, I actually have it somewhere of all the people who were there at the founding of the IA Institute. Mm. It was called Silomar at the time. We all met at a Silomar in in, in, uh, in um, the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, we, you know, none of, hardly any of those people are really very involved in IA anymore. And it's because I think people who start stuff like this uh, are natural gap fillers. We just sort of like see an area that hasn't really been plumbed before. And we jump in and we try to make sense of it. And then if we have any success, other people who are kind of deeper and more focused and, and maybe more kind of focused on operationalization, they move in. And, and the, the people who are sort of the pioneers get pushed out by the homesteaders. And that's OK. Um, you know, a lot of us pioneers have really, really short attention spans. <laughs> I mean, I think you're a perfect example of really keep doing that and, and really effectively successfully. Uh, so, uh, but the, the, I mentioned that I'd given a talk in Taipei last month and, um, it was called falling in and out and in love with information architecture. And, uh, I gave it not because I wanted to give a talk on IA, but because they wanted me to, and I was kind of grouchy about it. I wanted to talk about the stuff I've been doing and, um, they, you know, put a gentle gun in my head and, and I started working on this new talk. And uh, eventually what I came up with was something of a bit of a journey, uh, how a lot of people like you and I got into that area, uh, what pulled us out. And in my case, what's kind of been pulling me back in and what's pulling me back in is, is the sort of obvious kind of applicability of IA to all kinds of contexts beyond websites. And there's, there's a reason we titled the fourth edition of the Polar Bear book, Information Architecture for the web and beyond. Ah, yeah. Um, and it's that, you know, like, like, look, I mean, I, websites still need a lot of IA work, but there's all these interesting contexts ranging from how IA is going to be really kind of critical to the success of, of AI and, uh, and the kind of AI we're trying to apply practically more and more with products and services to the kind of systems thinking that, um, increasingly we have to do in order to to accomplish the goals of areas like service design 
And I think our, our, I know you had Chris Risden and Patrick Quattlebaum uh, recently on the podcast, and uh, and their book Orchestrating Experiences I think is very much about that. Mm-hmm. And then um, the area that I'm personally most interested in is the need for information architecture to be at the foundation of what I might call. Um, I'm sorry about this. I apologize to the listeners in advance. Inside ops. <laughs> Inside ops, I know. I mean, first of all, uh, we, we're seeing ops and added to the uh, uh, as a suffix to everything now. Yeah, I'm partly to blame for that because uh, about a year ago, I heard from Dave Maloof the term design ops. Yep, and I got real excited. And uh, short, long story short, we put on the design ops uh, summit uh, just about five months later, and it sold out. And we're doing the next one in New York in, in early November, uh, and. The idea of operationalizing design is really exciting yeah. because it's like, you know, all the blather about design thinking for all these years. Great. But let's get to, as uh, Colco would say, John Colco design doing and to to actually make design work at scale in large organizations, especially and to really enable your designers and to amplify their skills and keep them out of the BS work that is they're too expensive and smart for and good for well you need to have operations designed for that and we're seeing that going on like nuts mm. and you need to have research operations in order to operationalize the research uh these are research groups and all of that requires ia whether it's ia for pattern libraries and design systems whether it's ia for for helping uh uh, uh tag and structure the evidence that comes out of our research studies. And now I'm really interested in, well, I've kind of been talking about this for a bunch of years, what what I'm now calling inside ops, which is how do we actually create structures to help large organizations that are investing huge amounts of money in different kinds of research, whether it's user research, customer research, voice of the customer research, uh, big data and, and analytics and on and on. All that stuff is in silos. How do we pull it together so that the sum is greater than the parts? And I think you have to have a certain kind of operationalization consciously as an organization in order to make that happen. And I'm really excited by that. And IA is going to have to be a big part of that in order for that to work at scale. That is really interesting. I'm just kind of, as you were telling me that, I was kind of reflecting on how, uh, you know, like you said, this all sort of started with DevOps, right? This idea of there is a process that the engineering group uses to go from uh, writing some code through to testing some code through to staging some code through to production, uh, off to production to, to push out to a release. And, uh, and there was a lot of optimizations and some technology and, and some process engineering and stuff like that that all kind of came together i don't know 10 years ago in a way that um was neatly packaged up in this term uh devops and what happened is that that became the dominant culture for how a uh, uh typically startups but then larger enterprises just behave like this is how we do our work we're calling right. it devops and it came from a place of a set of technologies and a set of technical people um and and a little bit there's there is financial ops in that the way companies behave is large from a financial business point of view is largely standardized right we have 
uh, every quarterly reports to the public markets and there's general acceptable accounting practices, right? The gap reporting and all of that. And it's just like, that's just the way business is done. And so there's a, there's a culture and a pace and a momentum to that as well. And then there's all of us that we're like practicing user experience and we're like, yeah, we're trying to fit into the gaps of that. Right. And so I like the idea of like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe there's other metaphors or processes or culture, culture driving, uh, um, behaviors that that could be the dominant way that we do work it doesn't have to be around how we push code from uh from your fingertips out to the servers well and i think in ux especially we're ready for this because the, the i hate to say it man but you and i were we're, we're kind of you know we're, we're done in a sense. <laughs> no i don't hate to we're, say that at all i'm quite proud of know, that <laughs> we can kind of think our ideas of but we're, we're at a point that the field now is being, you know, taken over in a good way uh, by people who have um, not found their way by hook or by crook and, and studied at the School of Hard Knocks, but who have actually, you know, gotten degrees in, in some form of design. Uh, uh, you know, they, they've got, you know, formal training or education, and it's, it's a career now. And a lot of those people are going to be, you know, more comfortable doing the sort of, um, or going to really need the kind of operationalization that we're talking about that a mature field can handle and provide. So we're, I think we're at that point now. And it, so it's just like, you know, at some point, HR became a formalized thing, large organizations, an operationalized thing. I think we're getting there with design and with research. And that's exciting to see. Uh, you know, like it, the, 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 it's just like a natural progression. The, the, the folks like us, I think, you know, it's great. We, we can see it coming and it, we're not necessarily the people that are going to operate those organizations, but, um, it, you know, hopefully we can help them along in, in one way or another. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I want to talk about what the kids are up to these days, but I got uh, one more uh, sponsor I'd like to thank that makes this show possible. Uh, and that's Zojo. Zojo is a cross-platform development tool for creating native apps for the desktop, mobile, web, and even Raspberry Pi. Uh, Zojo currently supports macOS, Windows, Linux, iOS, and coming soon, Android. And so what you do with Zojo is you write one version of your app, say on the Macintosh, uh, and you check a checkbox and have a completely native Windows version as well. And Zojo uses native controls on each one of those platforms. So your apps look at home wherever they're being used. Uh, you'll be able to build apps 10 times faster, which will save you time and money. Zojo is a great for everyone from newbies to professional developers. Uh, it's currently used by over 300,000 developers worldwide from students to Fortune 500 companies. If you go and take a look at their website, you'll see how many companies you know already use Zojo. It's free to use, but licenses are required to build standalone applications. And if you go to zojo.com slash presentable, uh, you can find out more and Get 20% off any one of those licenses to make your own standalone application. Just use the code presentable at checkout. So thanks so much to Zojo. That's X-O-J-O dot com slash presentable. Thanks to them for support of this show and for all of Relay FM. Uh, yeah, so the kids these days uh, who are coming up uh, and kind of taking over the operations of all of this kind of stuff that's happening. I think that's really interesting to see, especially from the vantage point you and I have, you know. Yeah, you know, and it, what's so exciting to me is, and I've seen this for a few years, uh, I wonder if you have as well, it's like the, the, the kids, the quote kids, uh, they don't always have the kind of depth uh, of, of knowledge that 
maybe you know some of us got in our very narrowly focused and siloed academic backgrounds and graduate programs. So you know, like you know, I, I got a pretty deep exposure to information science and library studies, and but not to a lot of other areas because I wasn't encouraged to. You know, even at the University of Michigan, it, you know the the economic model of universities is they don't really want you to take courses outside that department. And they, um, you know, you, you, back in those days, it, it would be very strange if you were, you know, uh, not only looking in a more interdisciplinary way at your studies, but if you went to conferences that were not from your discipline, read journals that were not from your discipline, hung out with people that were not from your discipline, we kind of had blinders on. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, so like it was kind of weird back then to kind of sally forth and, and look into other disciplines. Now, today, what I see is that, you know, certainly in UX, it's a synthetic field of sorts. And so the, the kids are natural synthesists. They, they are they don't give a damn that this is a method or a tool or a way of thinking that comes from graphic design or from usability engineering or from wherever. It doesn't matter. They put it together in all kinds of really powerful ways. So I think they're very, they have a lot of power in terms of their breadth of exposure to different fields. They just may not have the, the kind of narrow depth that we may have had back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah. This argument I was, I was having uh, with my partner at Adaptive Path, Jesse James Garrett, again, one of the like, you know, going going way back into user experience and, and information architecture uh somebody who i think was uh, very influential as well um but i was always skeptical of the specialization around these things around deep into graphic design or deep into interaction design where i was a little more comfortable or deep into information architecture where he was you know which was his domain um and me feeling like these are skills that i think a a product person has uh, and, and that was ultimately, so I was at Adaptive Path for five or six years or so. And, and for me, um, consulting was not the kind of work I wanted to do, but, but user experience was, and that led me down the path of, of doing product development, um, and, and essentially entrepreneurialism over time. Well, and, and you were a natural gap filler. So you saw that opportunity to work on, and I'm, I, I apologize, it's escaping me the name of the product. I loved it, that, uh, that, that analytics product that you, uh, and, that, that Google bought. Yeah, MeasureMap. That's what it was. Google Analytics. What was it called? MeasureMap. Right, right. And I was like, wow, look at that. Veen is like taking UX and marrying it to analytics. That was really exciting. Well, the only thing that was available at the time were those little uh, odometers that you would put in the sidebar of your website, and they would just tick over every time reloaded, someone reloaded the page. And, that, <laughs> and we're like, there's got to be more we can know about that. And there's got to be, again, like a, a user-based what a user centered way of figuring out what people want from the interactions on their blog. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we went down that path and that did eventually turn into Google analytics, uh, through a, a tremendous amount of effort. Um, but it was, that was an amazing experience. Uh, but that also put me in this other position of being less about, I am a, I'm a person focused on user experience, uh, but I'm a person focused on product uh, and ultimately, I never called myself a product manager, but that's where I ended up being, right? This idea that like all the work we're doing in user experience ultimately sums up into those are the processes and methodologies we should be using in product management to get to make better products. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, like it's been really interesting to see that a lot of people who are very experienced UX folks have basically said, uh, I'm going to become a product manager because that's where I can really 
both have influence and really make what I know to be important and valuable as far as methodology really put it into action. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so that's fantastic. And, and, you know, like, again, if you were not kind of a natural gap filler, uh, you know, that might not have happened. So, you know, uh, on the other hand, you're, you're probably really happy that you're not spending, you know, the rest of your career deep into analytics. No, I'm just guessing. (laughs) No, 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 no. If the, if the first bit was around content management, the second bit was around visualization and analytics. And then, uh, after that I went to fonts, but I, I felt like, I felt like I was doing the same work over and over again and refining it and getting better at it just with, you know, different content. Uh, it's amazing. And it, it, it's, uh, it's very inspirational for me. You know, I, I, I hope to have the, the, a tenth of the success with conferences and books that you've had with those. Oh yeah. That, the, the, com- the conferences were, uh, well, still, I just got my email saying, you know, uh, UX week that Adaptive Path is still doing that even after getting acquired by Capital One. So there's a little plug. That's a great conference. And I am, to- I'm totally biased, but I'm still going to plug it and say, like, you should go. And they've got an amazing lineup this year. I'll put a link to it in show notes there. There's free advertising for them as well. Uh, you got, you've got, um, a conference. Oh, you just had a conference, didn't you? We, we, we have, we just had uh, enterprise UX or fourth one in San Francisco last week and it went really well. Uh, I don't know if we have time, but we did a lot to diversify the program and some interesting lessons there, uh, went, but it was a great thing to do. And, uh, we're really happy, uh, with the outcome. Uh, we're doing a virtual conference on the uh, business case for design. If you go to case4.design, that'll be July 31st. It's a one-day virtual. Uh, great lineup there. And then we're doing uh, the Design Ops Summit, the second one of those. First one sold out last year. The second one will be in New York City, November 7th through 9th. That's uh, designopssummit.com. And uh, we're really excited about, by programming that. I mean, you know, one of the beauties of doing conferences as well as doing books is they are an exercise in defining a field. Uh, you know, I hate definitions. I hate like the one sentence or two sentence definitions. I much prefer trying to put together ideas in a nice information architectured package, like, Mm -hmm. like a conference program or a book and use or a book line and use those as exercises in in defining a field. Oh yeah, totally. But, but at the same time, uh, what is the conversation right now? And, and having a little bit of, not, not not so much influence, but at least uh, observation of what's going on out in the world and how we can bring it all together and accelerate that conversation. I think it's incredibly valuable. Yeah, and there's interesting in, uh, comparisons of cadence too, like the cadence around the, the conversation that uh, happens once a year in conference form is a very different conversation uh, at a different cadence than the one that goes into uh, creating a book which we like to see as conversations as well. I mean, mm. you know, the writing part is obviously where, where it gets captured, just like the speaking part at a conference. But ultimately, they're all conversation that happen in different uh, time cadences and in different, slightly different formats. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So what, what, what's the books that are on, coming out that, that are on, uh, that's capturing your attention right now? I know you love them all, but uh, pick a couple of ones that we should pay attention well, to. Well, you know, first of all, uh, we, you know, uh, I, I'm trying to catch my breath because while we were doing Enterprise UX, we were putting out three books in about two months, <laughs> which is a lot. And I, I don't even know what's next. We're going to do a, you know, the second edition of Indy Young's Mental Models, your former business partner. Is, Indy's is, great. Yeah, it's, that's coming. 
Uh, and we've got some other really good books coming, but like, you know, life gets in the way. And so I don't really want to pin down the dates for later in the year just yet. But we just did three really great books uh, the first half of this year. Uh, Meeting Design for Managers, Makers, and Everyone by Kevin Hoffman. Yeah, we just had Kevin on the show. He was great. As you know, and he's fantastic. And this is like this horrible, horrible thing we all deal with meetings that don't need to be so horrible if you follow Kevin's advice, where he's looking at it from a design challenge perspective. The second book, uh, uh, you had them on the show, I think on your last show, is Chris Risden and Patrick Quattlebaum, former Adaptive Path people. Yeah. Uh, talking about orchestrating experiences and uh, dealing with um, uh, collaborative design for complexity, where they, they've kind of created uh, a really fantastic mashup of UX, customer experience, and service design, and, and made it very practical so that you can actually start tackling these hugely complex, uh, 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 you know, like multi channel experiences that. Uh, you really need a lot of those different brains working on it. It really does need to be collaborative. So this is like a, a very practical book to help you uh, take on those huge, complex, multi-channel design challenges. Nice. And then finally, uh, Jorge Arango, uh, his book came out last week at Enterprise UX. Uh, we had a signing for him. It's Living in Information, uh, Responsible Design for Digital Places. Mm. and. He is a, an IA guy. He, as I mentioned earlier, did the uh, fourth edition of Polar Bear book with Peter Morville and me. And uh, his book is really looking at the kind of uh, design work that we're doing now, which is sort of pervasive information. It's, it's physical. It's digital. It surrounds us. He says if we can frame those challenges not as products and services but as places – if we design places, we open up a whole new language, a whole, uh, a whole metaphor that we're familiar with that unlocks a lot of potential and possibilities in, in the way we see and, and do our design. And um, it, he also is really kind of making a point that a lot of us are really trying to work toward, which is to do so in an ethical and responsible mm. way. And uh, Jorge is an extremely deep thinker, brilliant guy, and, a, and I'm so jealous of him because I wish – I could write as well on his second language. Uh, I write, uh, you know, he writes in his second language as I write in my first. His, yeah. his writing is lovely. That sounds amazing. Uh, it also sounds like we've got a good reading list here for the summer. Go sit on the beach and read more about user experience. Uh, good stuff. Uh, Lou Roosevelt, always a pleasure. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Jeff. Great to catch up. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.